This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In 2015, a woman named Zola wrote a 148-tweet tweet storm. It was unlike anything I'd ever read on Twitter before. It began with these words. Y'all want to hear a story about why me and this B word here fell out? It's kind of long, but full of suspense. This was a story about strippers and sex work and maybe human trafficking, but also it was really, really funny. And it had a lot of plot and twists and turns and heroes and villains. It was cinematic. Flash forward to now, and Zola is a feature film. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. So in this tweet storm, now movie, Zola is this waitress in Detroit. An exotic dancer named Stephanie comes into her restaurant. They hit it off, and Stephanie convinces Zola to go down to Florida for a weekend of stripping and making a lot of money. My roommate just told me that he going down there tomorrow, and he asked me if I had any friends that want to make some money, and you the first bitch I thought of. When we leaving, be ready by two. But the road trip turned into something much bigger and darker and scarier. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And today on the show, we talk about Zola with one of its stars, Riley Keough. Riley plays the villain in this film, Stephanie, or she calls her the demon. Riley is drawn to performances like this in some of her most standout roles to date. The series The Girlfriend Experience or the movie American Honey, she isn't playing a hero at all. She's playing complicated characters, living uncomfortable lives, doing things a lot of people wouldn't approve of. In this interview, Riley tells me why she made that her niche and also how she learned her black scent for Zola. Yeah, it's a black scent. And why she was comfortable as a white woman using it. We'll also discuss how her very famous family the Presleys does and does not affect her work. All right, I like this chat a lot. I think you will too. Enjoy. You know, so this movie, Zola, it is born out of a 148 tweet long tweet storm that first told Zola's story. You know, I've never seen a film come from tweets like this. Uh, you've been acting a while. There was a time, I think, when no one thought this could happen. Could you have ever imagined, even five or six years ago, that you would be starring in a film that came out of a Twitter story? Never. And when I heard that, because I read the Twitter thread in real time in 2015 when it came out, when the rest of the world yeah. read the Twitter thread, and they told me that they're they're making a film and they're going to send me the script. And I'm, I was just, I remember thinking, how do you adapt a Twitter thread? Like, how does, how do you, how does a brain do that? You know? Well, because I walked into the movie yesterday saying, well, if I've read the tweets, am I going to get something new from the film? And I did. And yeah, it worked. It worked in this surprising way. How would you describe your character in the film, Stephanie? Stephanie is a, she's a demon. She's um, 
<laughs> she's a uh, kind of just like a walking inappropriate nightmare. Money, titties, money, titties. You know, on the page when I read her, you know, it's very clear that she's just this really offensive, out of control person. You know, and the the villain. She's the villain of the film. I think that what was interesting about that is when you're playing a villain, you you always really need to make sure to find empathy for them and to find, you know, especially as the performer, you want to be able to, you have to connect to your character and, yeah. and um, totally sort of step in their shoes. And... I really couldn't find that at first. I, you know, I, the first time I read it, I was just like, okay, she's just awful. <laughs> you know, she's she, fun. She's fun. Yeah, she's fun. She's, you know, she's totally, you know, enigmatic in this way. She, she, she's kind of like this wild woman that you kind of you're, you kind of want to go on a trip with her, but it could go two ways, mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, you're you're also witnessing a woman who's doing the best she can, and and. Um, and yeah. you don't know how she was raised. You don't know the trauma she's experienced, you know, and, and I think always keeping that in mind, but yes, in the film, she's, she's a demon. <laughs> you know, she's a, she's a, and I, and I think you're supposed to kind of feel those ways. I don't, I, I hate her and I like her and I, you know, and, you know, just confused and, and even the moments when you see her sort of like opening up or being vulnerable i think there's always a question in the audience's mind of like is this manipulation as well you know mm. coming up how riley prepared her character's black scent stay with us when the economic news gets to be a bit much listen to the indicator from planet money we're here for you like your friends trying to figure out all the most confusing parts one story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Legendary oceanographer Sylvia Earle has spent eight decades exploring underwater, and she has good news. Areas that are protected, you can see recovery. How We Save the Ocean, part two of our series on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. There's this one scene that Stephanie is in that I just cannot get over. It was so powerful for me. That night where Stephanie is kind of turning tricks all night. But the focus of kind of, yeah, <laughs> take it back, not kind of, full of, yeah. <laughs> but like during these multiple, like during the sex scene where she's with multiple men, the focus of the camera is not really her. The focus of the camera, it's the men, and they're grunting and huffing yeah. and puffing and making these awful sex faces and looking awkward and pathetic, and it's saying something about sex to me. Something yeah. different, something I don't usually see in movies. And I wonder, what yeah. did that scene say to you as you were making it? Because the the object of the gaze had shifted. Yeah. I mean, that's that the scene was saying to me, this is what Stephanie's experiencing. You know, and mm. I think a lot of the time she's seeing these men from these angles and this is and and feeling the intimacy of what that might be like. 
Whereas when you're normally seeing, you know, sex, it looks romantic and and sexy yeah. and um I I don't know, it was it was it felt like reality to me. It felt like oh this is the reality of what you know, this would look like. And you know, it's the first film I've I haven't <laughs> one of the first films I haven't been naked in. Oh. That's crazy because hearing you say that now, I'm like, oh, you're right. I didn't notice that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, I, and and that in itself was like so funny to me. And it's not that I have any issue being naked, but it's just was so funny to me that the first film I'm not naked in is, <laughs> is Zola. It's sexual film. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's very sexual. And, and, and I love that. You hear, okay, it's a strip. It's a movie about strippers um, and sex work. I'm gonna see titties, you know, and mm-hmm. there's none. <laughs> and I love that. And yeah. And then you're seeing, you know, you're seeing male, you're seeing male body parts, and there's a, a wide variety of, of, <laughs> of Excuse my language. <laughs> no, it's okay. You can say it. Well, I also like with the way that, with all of that that you're talking about, you know, what are we looking at? What are we not seeing? It is showing you how, especially in that scene where Stephanie, your character, is just running through these men. We see sex scenes usually where the man has the power and the woman is serving the man. Yeah. And that scene, it felt like you had the power. They wanted you. Mm-hmm. You were composed and in control. And they were these awful, crude-looking animals. And you mm-hmm. were in charge. And it, I don't know. I, I found it refreshing. It is refreshing, and you. I think. I think you also in that scene. What you're seeing very clearly is what that might feel like. You know, like it feels like a business. Oh yeah, a bit. She doesn't you know, care about like, them. It feels like it's yeah. She, there's no emotion. There's no you know, and and that I, I feel like the transactional um, aspect of it was captured really well in the way that Janixa shot it. Yeah, I was watching you in the movie, and. I was like, okay, she's about to cross that line, but she didn't. She's about to cross that line, but she doesn't. Because it's like this kind of role, not handled well, could really be a minefield for you in our current Mm -hmm. moment. You know, a blonde white woman with a heavy black scent whose character Mm -hmm. in some ways exploits a black woman. Mm -hmm. Was any part of you scared to take it on for those reasons and how fraught a role like that could be? In anybody else's hands, mm. other than Janixa's, I never would have ever wow. even considered it. <laughs> wow. What did she do as a director to make you feel that comfortable? Janixa is just such a genius. And the, th- the commentary she, you know, wanted to make and made is making on all of these things, sex works, female bodies, race. Like, it's all so thoughtful, you know, and it's coming from such a incredibly genius place um and and what she's doing sort of to the audience as you're watching this white woman talking the way she does and you know the black woman talking the way she does every single detail is like super profound and and thoughtful and so in anybody else's hands I never would have made this film and I think this film there's a million different ways this film could have been made you know and I think that I don't think I would have been interested in any of them. It's like Janixa was a huge part of why I wanted to do this film, yeah. you know? How'd you prep the accent for Stephanie in Zola? Who was the biggest source material inspiration? How did you prep? So um, I worked with this woman named Eris Mendoza, who's a writer and, and an actress. And in the beginning, it was like, 
okay, let's figure this out. Let's figure out what she's going to sound like, you know? Because yeah. in the script, it's very clear that the dialect, the, the words she's using and the way she's speaking is like very clearly appropriation. Yeah. So then it, the question was, do we go there? Is that what, what Janixa wanted to do with the accent as well? And um, it was. <laughs> <laughs> was there one particular like turn of phrase where you were like, I can't get that one. It's too hard. I can't say it like that. Oh, I actually have videos because what really helped is Eris. Eris did this thing where she was like, "Okay, your your mouth's too tight," and because I also have TMJ, she's like, "You need to like relax." So she would have me sit in her backyard and she'd put a cork in my mouth. What? <laughs> like a wine cork, and she put a cork in my mouth, and then she um, had me do all of my monologues with the cork in my mouth, and so I have all these videos <laughs> of, of me. With this cork in my mouth, like going through my Zola uh, monologues and she, you know, it, it worked. And then the amazing thing was on set, like because all of us were so close, mm-hmm. um, you know, I also had everybody on set that if I, you know, if I forgot how to say something or if I was like, should I say it like this or should I say it like that? You know, Coleman would be like, no, 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 say it like this, you know, yeah. <laughs> or like, or Taylor would be like, no, say it like that. You know, so I had I had this environment where like we were all creating this demon together. <laughs> you know, this demon together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's these small moments where I feel like one of the big themes is race as performance, sex as performance. These are personas we take on and characters we take on when we do things like sound black or white or perform sex work and there's this little quiet scene that i keep replaying in my head where your character is talking back to zola and it's a white woman and a black woman going back and forth with each other saying okay bitch okay girl okay bitch okay girl okay girl okay but to see the two of you play with it it was just wonderfully it just captured this like element of like racial performance that the whole film seemed to be a commentary on. And I liked it. Uh, well, I'm glad you liked it. And absolutely. And I think, and by the way, I think that's the only scene in the film that was improvised. Wait, really? I'll like, improv I think that? that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like we, like, I think, I think that like, okay, bitch or something was there. And I think we just kept going. Y'all did. Because we were just like making each other laugh. <laughs> but I think that that was that, yeah, that was kind of like, the only moment in the whole film that was like kind of just us going off the script. Up next, why Riley tends to play antiheroes. Stick around. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Seems like you like taking on roles where you are not the main hero. You're an anti-hero. You're incredibly messy. What do you think that's all about? That's a really good question. Um, you know, a lot of the times those roles are more complicated to me. And I like that. Yeah. I like that. I like yeah. that f- as an artist trying to sort of like figure out this person. Um, it feels like I have a lot of work to do in terms of finding the empathy. And I love that experience as a as a Riley. <laughs> and <laughs> I feel like especially female characters are getting more and more complex complex and more realized and within that you're fine of course you know we're not all little you know angels walking around every day <laughs> and I think that yeah. I think that you know I just like that process I like the process of humanizing people that in the first meeting you're going this is a villain this is an unlikable yeah. person yeah you know I I noticed that a lot of your work is about money and not having it and needing to get it And what people need to do when they need money. And I wonder, and I'm not here to go into like the names in your family tree, but I do wonder how much of you taking on these roles is connected to you having a mom who was rich and a dad who was not. Like growing up seeing both. Yeah. Does that affect, did that affect the way that you approach money in your work? Absolutely. Like growing up with a mother who was very privileged and having those moments with a father who doesn't have much um, that, you know, are heartbreaking and make you want to work hard for them. You know, having that, I, I got to experience that or wanting to help. And then I got to experience having a mother who literally had, you know, everything, you know, so it was a very bizarre upbringing. It, 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 it's kind of thrown me somewhere in the middle and I, mm. in terms of like, um, I, yeah, I think I would. Ha- I, I probably have had a more uh, different life than people would have ex- expect um, totally. from just like yeah. you know hearing hearing that I'm you know Elvis's granddaughter. Growing up, did you feel more connected to the rich side or the poor side? That's a really interesting question. Um, I have this thing from like early childhood where I felt so connected to like all the sides. You know, mm. like I just like. I felt like a sort of a witness in life, like I'm watching this movie more than a participant. Mm. Um, and I've, I felt like I fit in everywhere. You know, I, there's not a space where I feel really uncomfortable. And I think it's funny, though, because when I was a kid, my dad, he was living in, in an apartment at the time. And, um, and he would just make life really fun because he didn't have money. So we'd just do a lot of stuff, you know, and it was just a much different experience. And I remember saying to him one time, um, I, when I grow up, I want to be poor like you. Wow. What did he say to you back? I don't remember, but I remember thinking at the time, like, this is going to be a compliment. He's going to love this, you know? Uh, (laughs) And, uh. you know, and then as an adult, I'm, I'm, going like wow that would have been a really hard thing 
to have your yeah. your child say say to you and you know what i meant was like i loved his life and like i loved the simplicity of it and i loved that mm. we would go do things and mm. spend quality time together and mm. um you know i don't I, I don't think it was a financial thing but i i just remember saying that to him and just sort of like you know what i thought that i thought that, that his life and his um the experiences I had with him at, like was because he was poor, <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's just like an yeah. interesting like interpretation as as a child. Don't know. Don't know. You know, so much of the work you do, you are swallowed by these roles, and you really commit to them. And I'm sure most people, a lot of people watching you in this and in other work, don't know who you are, right? And do you? want to keep that going you know do you want people to not think about you and your bio when they're watching you in these works or is there a moment where if you choose you know that conventional hollywood route they're gonna know do you think about that and like do you wonder about how to use celebrity at some point to bring more people in maybe because there's a certain kind of fame where like people have to like tell everybody everything about their entire lives you know what's funny about that is like I don't really care about that. I I have no problem with being everyone knowing everything about my life. You okay. know, and I think that's because I grew I I grew up like that. Yeah. I grew up with you know, going to the grocery store and my mom's on the cover of all the magazines there and you know, there were photographers at my school and you know, it was kind of very something I it was probably similar to like how the Kardashians kids are growing up now. Like that was kind of my upbringing, uh. you know. So uh. so I I'm, I don't feel precious weirdly about um, people knowing me. Um, and I think that the more people know about you, the more the more you can um, connect with people. You yeah. know, and I think that um, I love that so much about this generation. I love the openness and I love the, the open communication. Yeah, yeah. I do want to ask you one last question uh, about something you've talked about recently that really made me want to ask you about it a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. You shared on Instagram uh, recently that you've become a death doula. I guess first question, what does a death doula do? Yeah, so when I, I lost my brother in 2020, um, I felt the way that the Western, Western society handles death felt so deeply wrong to me on so mm. on a soul level and in what ways just the the how you're not how the first thing i remember thinking is why did nobody warn me about grief in life why did no nobody mm. teach me that this can happen and mm. death is just so hidden from western culture and yeah it's like, you know, a person dies, they get taken away, you cover them up, you put them in a thing. And then the second thing was like, it was so hard to find resources to find like, what, um, like people to help and, and you have to really look and in other spaces like birth, marriage, uh, whatever, there's there's a, a crazy amount of resources for these big life experiences and there aren't in death. Mm. You know, they're not like at Barnes and Nobles all over the front, you know, right when you walk in. And I just felt really, 
I felt really like I was thrown in the ocean and I couldn't swim and nobody could teach me. And, you know, and that's obviously like a part of life and you have to uh, go through these experiences. And, but I just felt like if there's a way that I can contribute um, in that space, like I, I was really wanting to do that. Totally. Is there anything in that work that you think is or has become applicable to your day job, to your acting? I mean, applicable to my acting and also to life is like um, if you can take one of the most uh, basic fears away, which is death, you're living a much more um, present, fulfilled life. And then therefore mm. you're living, living, you know, I'll be more present for everything and, and more grateful and more able to show up and um, and be there in acting or in my marriage or in my relationships. I like that. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for that incredible performance in Zola. I've never seen anything like it before. Um, I cannot wait to see what you do next. I really can't. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks again to Riley Keough. You can catch her new movie, Zola, which is out tomorrow. Y'all, I watched it. I liked it. I really did. All right, this episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain with help from Andrea Gutierrez, and it was edited by Jordana Hochman. Also, listeners, don't forget we are back in your feeds this Friday with another episode, and for that one, you get to be a part of it. We want to hear the best things that have happened to you all week. Just record yourself and then email that file to me, samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, till Friday. Thanks, as always, for listening. Be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR.